You're listening to the Sparrows and Wildflowers podcast. Stories of faith, love, life, loss, and eternity. Welcome to Sparrows and Wildflowers, episode 30. Today, we have the exciting opportunity to hear from speaker and author, Michael McQueen. This will be our final interview for 2016, but we will have a special Christmas episode to finish off the year, which will be a shorter episode and will be released a few days early so that you've got time to listen and share before Christmas. And now a bit about today's guest. Michael McQueen is the author of four best-selling books and features regularly as a commentator on TV and radio, speaking on topics across business and culture. In his career, Michael has presented to over 300,000 people across five continents and has shared the stage with the likes of Bill Gates, Whoopi Goldberg and Larry King. In this insightful chat, we get to hear about his faith, family, his early years in Wollongong and how his career progressed to where it is today. And now I hope you really enjoy this conversation with Michael McQueen. Oh, Wollongong boy. Yes, right. I grew up just south of Sydney, so for anyone who's not a Sydney person, about an hour south of Sydney, little suburb in Wollongong, and I moved to Sydney after university. So this has been home now for 12 years. So this, Sydney is home now, but certainly not from Sydney originally. Right. And what are some of your early memories growing up in Wollongong? So yeah, I'm, a, I'm a big family, so a big Catholic family growing up, so five boys. And so for us... Um, family was always high octane there was always something going on and you know being five boys as well sort of your place in the pecking order you had to really fight for that so I was second oldest and we had a lot of fun we grew up in the back of a bush area so we used to love in winter we never did it in summer because of the fear of snakes but in winter we'd go out and we would just spend all day um, creating paths and carving out little worlds in the lantana bush in the back of our place and it was just fascinating growing up in that area to all around us were housing developments that were built and we used to love just going and breaking in essentially. I mean, stuff you probably wouldn't let kids do now, but sort of trying to figure out what room was what based on the floor plan and as the, as the frame went up and it was just a very carefree existence, very simple, which has been interesting even moving to Sydney thinking, how do you raise a family in Sydney when mm. being in a city is so different? Yeah, Wollongong was a really simple, um, sort of chilled out place. It's an interesting culture, Wollongong. It's a place that for a long, long time going back to, I felt almost smothered. I'm going back to Wollongong, I couldn't wait to get back to Sydney, whereas just in the last probably two or three years, I, I enjoy going back now and I can appreciate it for what it is, which is which is nice. And what was family life like for you? you grew up in a big family. Yeah, it was interesting. So within the within the five boys, we are all completely different personalities. I mean, it's interesting how you can have, t- you know, children come out of the same two parents, but you're completely polar opposites. So you know, we've got some that are you know, really outgoing and then really sort of quiet and timid. So the family itself is really interesting um, and some alliances between some brothers versus other brothers. It often happens when you've got a group of more than two or three as alliances form. Um, but we all got on well. It was interesting though growing up, so mum was involved in the Catholic Church. So we all went with her to church, but then dad wasn't. So dad went to a Protestant church. And so we had this interesting environment where we sort of, had almost a split um, family faith-wise, which was unusual because in our in our community, so the way it works often is you go to a Catholic primary school and all your friends 
are all at the parish, they're all in the church, and so you grew up and they've all got Taragos because we're all big family. That was our group of friends. And, um, yeah. yeah, so Dad was never involved in that. We're always supportive, but, yeah, we had that sort of interesting dynamic growing up. Yeah, so we with this interesting balance where yeah, Dad would go off to church on his own on Sunday night and we'd always go to Mass with Father on Sunday morning. So it was that was probably one of the more interesting things. But, yeah, family was, yeah, a lot of fun, very loving and supportive, not particularly... Um, and the word often I use is effusive, like you know, really giving of praise. And, and it's interesting, I think, as you grow up too and, and having kids, you think, what are the things from my childhood that I value, that I want to replicate with my own family? What are the things that I don't want to replicate? And probably one of the things is we're not great at encouraging each other verbally, mm-hmm. giving praise. And then we've gotten better as the years have gone on and we've gotten closer as a family as the years have gone on. But yeah, sort of, I guess, quite a stoic stiff upper lip, suck it up, get on with life. And that probably came from mum who's very pragmatic and, and very matter-of-fact, very strong, incredibly strong. Um, but with that strength came perhaps a lack of that, you know, really um, emotive sort of thing. I didn't see mum cry for the first probably 15 years of my life. We had this interesting dynamic, really pragmatic, which is a great strength, but with that mm-hmm. came some interesting nuances as well. And so on the religion and, and spirituality issue, do you, mm. I mean, do you have an early memory of that or a first memory? I do. So I was probably from a young age very uh, sincere. So I thought, you know, for me, even as a young kid, I remember being quite um, diligent. And I remember embarrassingly, actually, as a kid, saving up pocket money to go to the local Catholic supply store in Wollongong and buy my own rosary beads that would glow in the dark <laughs> and so the goal was that because I would glow in the dark you know when mum told me to turn the light off I could still use the rosary beads I mean which is actually really naff and sort of uncool <laughs> and it was uncool but that was how I guess serious I was about faith it was always something that was really and I thought if, if this is real this has got to be a key part of my life but yeah going through the catholic church in school when you're in primary school all your friends are in church they're all in Know, the equivalent of kids' church, and there's that real sense of community. Then as you go into high school, many most of your friends drift away. So remember beginning to about age 15 or 16 and uh, probably year 8, year 9 at high school because I went to a government high school, whereas most of my friends went to a Catholic high school. And ironically, I stayed at church and none of them did. And so I sort of found myself as one of the only young people left at church. So I started to drift away at that point for probably only a matter of months and then started going to church with my dad, which I'd never really done most of my childhood. And so that was a really flourishing Anglican church, one of the biggest Anglican churches um, in the state, I guess. It's certainly the biggest in Wollongong. And that was a really alive place, lots of young people. So I started going along there and there was a crusade. Um, I'm trying to think of his name, Greg Laurie um, from Harvest Church over in the US. They were running a crusade in Wollongong, which they then ran a few years later in Newcastle. But Wollongong was their trial city. And so the church I was going to in Wollongong were one of their key organising churches. So about 12 months before the crusade was going to run, he came out to the church and preached one night. And um, that's probably where I met an adult commitment of faith when he preached and gave an altar call. I mean, in truth, one of the reasons I went forward is because of the girl I liked and she went forward and I thought, well, if she's into it, we'll be into it too. But that was only part of it. You know, I really was quite moved and it was sort of one of those moments where I thought, I've got to make a call here. And I've grown up with an inherited faith that I've been sincere about, but... As I got older, the Catholic faith held less meaning for me. It was a lot of, particularly the church I was going to, very, a lot of liturgy, a lot of tradition, not a lot of life or relationship. And I guess that's always been my bent. I'm like, if, if something's real, I'm going to really engage with it and tease it out and think about it. That wasn't really encouraged um, in the Catholic church. You, well, certainly the one I went to, you just go to church and you do your thing. And so well, going to the Anglican church, I thought this is a place where, you know, I could really engage with peers, a lot of young people. And also it was a really alive place where, 
the gospel was preached and the Bible was taught clearly. And so, yeah, so I made a commitment at about age 15 or 16. But prior to that, I think the first indication, a really key indication that, that God was real beyond the liturgy um, that I learned at church. I remember a bit of scripture teacher in year seven, and I still keep in touch with her. She's a, a, a dear woman. She's amazing. And one day in scripture class, she just bought in probably a cassette player, I imagine. Mm -hmm. And she bought in this cassette player and played a song. And she didn't really say anything about the song, but it was Shout to the Lord, probably just when that came out. So whatever year Shout to the Lord came out, that was played. And I just remember sitting in this scripture class with no context of understanding what this was and still being at the Catholic Church, so not quite getting anything beyond that model of Christianity. And hearing this worship song and just being quite moved, and it was very much a Holy Spirit thing, like almost in tears, which of course, you know, when you're in your seven and a boy, you can't cry in scripture <laughs> class, but I really felt this sense of there's something here. And so I had these sort of glimpses of that, and then I made an adult commitment at about age 16, and that was, you know, boots and all, really. Once within about 12 or, 12 or 18 months, I was um, worship leading at that church, I was leading a youth group, you know, and in fact, ironically, when the um, that Harvest Crusade actually came to Australia 18 months later, I was on team. So it was sort of a really cool, a really flourishing season where I went from sort of being on the outside of, of Christianity to being thrust really into it in a big way and, and spent probably a good five or six years at that church and grew massively for that next season. And did that shift things at home for you, going from the Catholic to the Anglican church? Yeah, it did a little bit. Yeah, I remember... Um, we did a course, uh, it was like an evangelism course for you to go and learn how to share the gospel. And it's part of a thing called Evangelism Explosion, which is this thing run around the world and just a model of sharing the gospel. Mm-hmm. And so it was a two or three day course that ran over summer. I remember going to this probably about 18 months after becoming a Christian and feeling really zealous and passionate and excited and, and going home one night just trying to explain to mum what I'd learnt. And, and as I look back, it was probably quite awkward and embarrassing really, but I sort of was practicing my gospel pitch on her, partly to try and get some practice, but also just deep down wondering whether you know, her understanding of, of the gospel was the same as mine, because the longer I went on in an Anglican church, the more I realized that there were just subtle differences. And you know, the Catholic Church's take on grace and forgiveness and salvation by faith and all those things, it, it's there in the doctrine, but it's often not what's preached. Um, and so. Yeah, I remember um, sharing that with mum and, and she was sort of like, you know, went along with it. But as I look back, it was probably very awkward. This zealous 16, 18, whatever I was, year old, trying to save my mum or at least try and impress her with my knowledge of the gospel. I remember at one point our dog died and we were a big dog family. And it's funny, when, he, when this dog died, we loved it really dearly. And I remember getting together as a family and everyone was upset. And so I said, hey, let's just pray together. I remember my mum sort of going, like that, it's very uncomfortable. I remember really clearly I was sitting around and and her just sort of, I don't think she even closed her eyes because it was just so different. The idea of sitting as a group, as a family and praying out loud, you know, you don't really do that in the Catholic, in the Catholic faith. So I think as time went on, my understanding and expression of faith was a little bit different. It didn't cause friction, but yeah, those, those differences emerged. And so school in terms of the academic side, mm. how did you find it? So yeah, I'm being second oldest in in my family, the oldest brother is infuriatingly smart. He just if he read something once, he didn't just remember it, he understood every concept involved and he'd remember it forever. So he didn't seem to do a lot of work and still got at that point a TER of ninety-seven point something. So going through second after him 
not that there was any sense of you have to live up to that, but it was harder because that's not my bent. I'm not naturally academically smart like that at all. I had to work hard, really hard. And so one of the things that I do well is I'm super organized. So when it came to exam time, I thought, okay, we're gonna have to make up for a lack of natural academic smarts, particularly the book smarts necessarily do well in science and maths. Um, and I have to be organized and just outwork, outstudy all my, all my friends who were smarter than me. And so I worked really hard, like really hard. I think in the holidays, just prior to the HSC, we were doing, I think it was 208 hours and I tracked every single one of them. It was massive, I just worked my backside off. And so it did well, but it was never easy. It was never effortless at school. And school was pretty miserable. I didn't like school at all. So the reason I'd gone to the high school I did is because my dad taught there, which is a recipe for uncoolness. <laughs> That's it. You know, so I went from a Catholic primary school and the only one from my school that went to the government high school I went to. So I got there. Everyone else in year seven had been to the same primary school. So yeah. I turned up as one of the, there was probably only 15 of us that hadn't come from these same four or five feet of primary school. So everyone else knew everyone. And we were the weird ones that were sort of sitting in the cracks between all the groups that were established and my dad taught there. And I wasn't particularly cool. Like I wasn't sporty and I just didn't fit. So first couple of years of high school were really awful. Mm. Awful. And I think in some ways, it was, it was a great thing because it, it forces you to you know, draw deep on character and just sort of figure out who you are outside of your social group. And probably by about year nine or ten, started to really crack into a, a group of friends that became really good friends for the next sort of three or four years. But the first few years of high school were, yeah, miserable, really miserable. Like, I often think back on them, if I drive past the school, I sort of have this sort of makes this shudder, like, oh man, I hated that so much. And it's funny going back to school about, I don't know, ten years after I graduated, they asked me to give the graduating speech. And, you know, they always expect you to give this, you know, the world is your oyster, dream big, do whatever you want to do and all that sort of stuff. I thought, I think I'll just take it a bit differently. I remember sharing a message on the, I think it was the five things that they haven't told you yet. Mm -hmm. Um, And they were really honest things. And one of them was, these are the best years of your life. You know, this idea that that is just not true. You know, so often we get that message in high school, like, this is as good as it gets. And probably like 16 year olds are going, if this is as good as it gets, no wonder is this like rampant depression because it is a depressing thought. I mean, if, you're, if you don't fit in and you're out of high school and, and you're being told these are the best years of your life, no wonder you think, well, gosh, if this is the peak, the rest of it's pretty bleak. And so, you know, just telling you this group at, at the year 12 graduation that for some of you, this has been a great for you. So for some of you, it hasn't. It's not the best years. It's just a season of life and there's good and bad stuff in it. But certainly there was great stuff, but some really hard stuff in high school for me. Didn't love it. Wouldn't, would hate to go back to high school. Just hate that. But <laughs> some people loved it. Um, my wife certainly loved high school. She often reflects on it, but she had a very different experience to what I did. And so now you're a speaker and a writer. Were you a, a public speaker and a writer yeah. back then? Yeah, just in case I wasn't cool enough, of course, <laughs> I joined things like the debating team and you know, public speaking courses and or, or competitions. Ironically, never did very well at most uh, public speaking competitions were essentially like a, they were more about basically who could be the most melodramatic. I mean, I remember right. looking back at them and it wasn't really public speaking. It was, I don't know, like speech and drama on steroids. And so I used to go in these competitions and, and not do very well at all. And the irony is of all the people that probably went through those competitions, I'm the only one who probably does it as a career now because at that stage didn't do very well, but was always attracted to it, always loved speaking. Um, you know, did stuff on SRC again, recipe for uncoolness. But you know, really found a sense of identity in, in being a spokesperson for the year group and getting involved in like projects. And in fact, travelled to the US as part of a, an SRC group when I was in year ten, which was cool. It was 
maybe 40 or 50 of us from around Australia that were selected to go to America and do a tour around and go to youth leadership camps over there. So I was always attracted to that, those sort of roles and you know, realistically always wanted to do what I'm doing. The goal for that actually started when I was about eight and you know, probably like a lot of people my age, um, in the late 80s, early 90s, my parents were in Amway. Many people in sort of middle class groups at that time you know, were in Amway for a period of time. My parents were quite involved and I remember them dragging us to a conference in Melbourne and it was like a national sales conference for Amway. And if you know anything of their conferences, they're high energy, good speakers, like it's that sort of, that sort of vibe. And that babysitter fell through, so I went along to this conference as an eight-year-old. And there was a woman speaking from the U.S. named Florence Litauer, speaking about personality styles, I think. And so she was a Christian speaker from the States, amazing communicator. And I remember as an eight-year-old sitting at the back of this room just being entranced by this woman, thinking, what an amazing skill to be able to stand in front of, I don't know, maybe three, four, five thousand people in this auditorium. And she just held them all for an hour. And I remember even just leaving that day and... And saying to my parents as we're filing out of the, the auditorium, that's what I want to do. And they probably politely said, oh, that's nice. You know, as you would say to an eight-year-old saying, that's going to be my career. That was the day I decided that this is the sort of thing I wanted to do. And was always naturally attracted to good speakers, loved listening to good speakers. And so, yeah, in, in one sense, what I do today is exactly what I always hoped, which is sort of fun, living the dream. And then you spoke about how you're really involved in your church yeah. and in the youth. I'm interested to know, firstly, was that like kind of socially a better space for you than school? And secondly, were you speaking, pu- public speaking at the church? Yeah, not much, a little bit. I remember the first chance I got to preach was at a youth group one night, um, probably after I'd been at the church for a little while. But yeah, this is a thing, I guess, in church and those environments, I was really confident and gregarious and outgoing and, you know, really comfortable. Like I was a swimmer, so, you know, in swim squad, you know, that's the same thing. So I had these, almost these two personas at school. I was not timid, but I was I know, self-conscious and awkward and, and, and didn't have that boldness, really. Mm-hmm. And it wasn't particularly funny. Whereas in those other environments, I was, I was sort of like a bit of, not the life of the party, but, you know, really, really comfortable and, and outgoing. And so it's sort of funny. I had these years where at school, I was one thing. Outside of that, I was another. So in that church environment, yeah, I was certainly able to just be myself, which was great. And eventually, as time went on, that sort of you know, outgoing me became me at school as well, but it took a lot of years to get there. Um, and I think partly it was because I was never, I was never very youthy. Like I was never, even as a 15 year old, I was just wanting to get on with life. And it was just like, come on, I just want to get past all this because I was keen to get on with things. And so, you know, it'd be, you're surrounded by 15 and 16 year olds who are going through what most 15 and 16 year olds do and all the, the catty stuff and the gossip and the fashion and the vanity and, uh, even as a 15-year-old, I'm like, this is so stupid. Come on, guys, grow up. You know, so that's probably why I didn't fit in. So, uh, you know, as time went on and suddenly get to year 10 and everyone grows up a bit, I'm like, now nah, everyone's on the same page, which was cool. Um, yeah, so certainly working with youth, even being a youth group leader wasn't a natural fit because even when I was a young person, like in that young teenage years, I, didn't, I wasn't really youthy at that age either. So, you know, being a youth group leader was fun, but it was never a natural fit for me. And then, so what did life look like after school? So, finished um, year 12, spent a year just working in a bookshop in retail, sort of a bit of a gap year, but without the glamorous travel, but just sort of chilling out. I just, at that point, I wasn't quite sure whether ministry was going to be involved in something in the future. I remember there was a role came up at our church for um, the, the Washington Creative Arts pastor, and I remember umming and ahhing about whether I'd go for that in that sort of year period, thinking, is that what the next season's going to be? And... I think I did apply for it, didn't get it, which in hindsight was great. Um, you know, wouldn't have been a good fit, but 
just didn't know at that point. And then um, yeah, got a job offer in Sydney, so moved to Sydney to work in a sales role for a, market, a software marketing company. And yeah, that was the big transition was leaving everything. So everyone I knew, leaving church, leaving, moving out of home, like all that sort of stuff at age like 21, I think. So not super young, but yeah, young enough to, it, for it to be a big move. And then moving to Sydney and getting this job, working for a company, and we were actually based, the company was based in Villawood. So I'd drive out to Villawood, and I mean, any listener that knows Villawood's a, it's, 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 it's not the most glamorous area. We're in an industrial estate, and that was a pretty tough first six to eight months of being in Sydney, not having any money, not really knowing anyone, working in an environment that wasn't particularly inspiring, doing a job that was really not inspiring. And so that was an interesting transition. Moving to Sydney was, was tough, but, but great at the same time. And did you find yourself in another church community? Yeah. So you yeah, floated between a couple of churches because I was living in the inner west in Sydney. So I went to um, Hillsong Church at Burwood uh, to an extension service there, which was great, great community. But it was, it was interesting because at that stage, you sort of went to your extension service in the morning and then the, the expectation was at night you'd go out to Hillsong Hills Campus. And it just sort of, I remember trying to do that, but it felt like you were straddling two worlds. I'm like, I want to be involved in a local church. So you go to the local church, but if you weren't involved and went at night again out at Hills, you sort of weren't quite with the program. And so I remember going, I went there for about six months, but just, yeah, sort of, it just wasn't gelling because it wasn't a, it sort of, it was an extension service. It felt like you were a mini version of the bigger church. So, and, and Hillsong was so far away from home. So that idea of, of being planted there just didn't sort of work. Um, but I was going to evening college at Hillsong for about 18 months, which was great. That was a really, you know, really cool time of being in Sydney and, you know, being able to redefine yourself. You move cities and you're like, well, who, who do I want to be? What do I want to do? And you know, this great opportunity where no one knows you. So evening college was a really great time. And in fact, some of the most pivotal moments of, of planning for what I'm doing now happened either at evening college sessions or even driving home afterwards and just praying through, you know, what's this season going to be about, God? And, yeah, it was just a very defining time. So I was sort of going to Hillsong a little bit, but then I went to a couple of churches locally and then met my girlfriend who became my wife, and she knew of a church um, in Crow's Nest, Northside Church she'd gone to it before, and it was a Church of Christ church, which she had grown up in that denomination. So... And we started dating and going on there. So we got plugged in there about 13 years ago and now I'm on the eldership. We've been there for a long time and it's been great. That's a church that's really grown. So we've been a part of that. And when we went there, there were probably only about, I don't know, eight or nine young adults. And now there'd be hundreds and hundreds. Very exciting. Yeah. So work-wise, you were in the software company. Yeah. Not super excited about no. it. <laughs> How did things progress from there? So I um, pretty much just decided to start a business and I wanted to get into speaking and thought, well, how do I do that? I joined a thing called the National Speakers Association, which is sort of like the peak body for people in that industry. Met a few people who said, if you want to get into this space, you've got to find something, a topic you can be the expert in. And I was at the time 22 and I thought, well, you can't be a credible expert in much at 22, realistically. You can't be like an expert in leadership or teamwork or realistically, you haven't got many runs on the board. And I thought, well, being young, how do I use that as an advantage? And so at that stage, the whole generational discussion was a big thing, you know, Gen Y versus baby boomers versus Gen X. And being a Gen Y young person, I thought, well, that's an area that, what if I you know, did some research and, and looked to really specialize and become an expert in what Gen Y are thinking as a young person, as a Gen Y person. And so I did a whole body of research based around that. And my dad had been a careers advisor at a high school. And he said, yeah, this is really interesting research. 
you could actually roll out a series of programs for high school students around, but, but flipping this on its head, helping Gen Y understand how their bosses are going to think when they leave school. I mean, they're going to be going out to the workforce soon. And when you get into the workforce, what are the attitudes of your boss going to be? How do you play the game? How do you get ahead at work? And so I'm be giving him this manuscript um, for what was essentially going to be the first book and the research that I'd done into Gen Y versus all the different generations. And so he just said, I reckon you should do this. And interesting timing, and I guess this will probably come out in our discussion, but four days later, he passed away. Right. 51, no, no warning. Um, but all I had from him is he'd read the manuscript, said, this is great, I think this is really helpful. I'll connect you with a woman who runs the Careers Advisors Association because they're the ones that could help connect you with some schools who may want to book you to come and run this. And so all I had was an email from him introducing me to this woman named Lynn Camp, and he passed away like a day or two later. And so after the dust settled, after the funeral, I remember seeing this email and it was one of those pivotal moments. I thought, do I follow this up? Like, is this, could I make a business out of this? He definitely thought there was, you know, there was an opportunity and the funding was there and the need was there and I could do it. So I emailed this woman and she was gracious enough to say, probably out of you know, sympathy and you know, realizing how much grief we'd gone through in the previous few weeks, she was happy to meet with me. And she was a real help. She said, you know, this is how the, how the world in schools works. This is where the funding is. This is if you want to start a business. This is how you do it. And so we you know, whipped up a brochure with the topics I could go in and speak to schools about, and none of them existed. Like, it was just a list of topics um, with these presentations that as, as schools booked them, I quickly wrote them because I'm like, well, the content's not there, but it's book number four on the list. I better write that now. So I put out this brochure, sent it around to schools, went through that, that network of careers advisors, started getting a few bookings to go and speak at schools. And so I was still working in the software job, and I had this, um, this sort of... I don't know, like a serviced office phone number set up. So whenever phone calls would come through to the business, it would get answered by what sounded like a real answering machine for like press one, press two. Like it was like this massive organization. It was just me. Um, but, but it sounded like it was a proper business, which was good. And so I'd get these messages and they'd get sent through to me and I'd go out to the car park and return the phone calls to the school, then race back up to my job and sit back at my desk. And so I was trying to straddle the both for a while. So build up a little bit of work in the schools market and eventually had to leave that, that software job because the, the demand started to grow. So it was a slow process, probably six to eight months before some bookings for these school workshops came through. And then the biggest decision of all, and this was only, I don't know, two months after we got married. So no money, new couple, setting up home. And I'm like, so let's, and my wife was really supportive. She said, yeah, I think you should leave the job and, and commit full time. And so put up stumps, left the job, left the security and started off with the business running stuff in schools and then it all grew from there. And so I'm interested because you said you didn't like school so much and you didn't really want to go back. (laughs) How did you find it going and speaking in schools? Deceptive question. Couldn't stand it. It was awful. Even as I was saying, you know, as a young person, I wasn't typically youthy. The programs that I'd run were things that touched on the issues that young people are grappling with as they prepare for transitioning to the workplace and stuff that quite honestly come naturally to me as a young person is like you know, writing a resume, planning for job interviews. Like I was sort of like Mr. Grown Up Teenager, so that, those things came naturally to me. And so I had to go in and then run all these programs for youth again, you know, even though it wasn't an area that I was naturally gifted or called in. You know, Some people I, just, I think just love working with youth and they're made to do it. And I love that. That's not me. Mm-hmm. And so I realized that this work in schools was necessary because I had this research about generational change, but I had no credibility. I was mm-hmm. just a young person who read a whole lot of stuff and put together a manuscript for a book. And so I thought what I need to do is have some runs on the board working with these young people. If I'm going to talk about youth trends, I need to have worked with enough of them 
yeah. at the coalface to be able to be credible and say, this is what Gen Y are thinking. And so for me, that three and a half years was really hard. Like I remember going out to schools and most of the schools were in really rough areas because that's where the funding was. You know, they had money to run programs. So every day I'd be going out to a school where the kids didn't want to be there, the teachers didn't want to be there. And they'd just be happy because they got a, a class period off and they're like, yeah, okay, they, they remember these times where I'd sit, you know, go out to a school and they'd get all the kids from year 10 and like in the library and they'd be all sitting on the floor and be hot, no air conditioning. And the teacher would say something like, shut up and pay attention, this guy's going to hit to motivate you or something like that. That was the intro. And so I sort of get pushed out in front of this group of year 10. So you can just imagine like folding arms like, okay, come on, do your best. And so that was day after day. And most days I remember waking up and just feeling sick to my stomach. I'm nervous. I'm so nervous. And I, yeah. Because it was such, it was just not an easy fit. I got really good really quickly because you have to. With students, they give you real-time feedback. If you're not engaging and confident and know where you're going, you won't grab them. And so I got really good at doing something I wasn't naturally gifted in and did it for three and a half years. And, you know, over that course of, over the period of time, we'd also, I'd do surveys with the students at the end of the workshop. So I had the data from everything I'd read, the data from the surveys and had worked with 80,000 students in three and a half years. Wow. So you can sort of then go to the market and say, look, this is what I've done. I can now talk about Gen Y and trends in young mm-hmm. youth culture because I've been there and done it. And mm-hmm. so then I wrote the first book about Gen Y um, at the end of that process, which then came out. And then all of a sudden the, the work shifted, which I loved because the work shifted to them working with school teachers and local chambers of commerce and businesses who were looking to engage young people. And that was then the transition away from working with students to working with adults, which was much more comfortable, a much better fit. And so, yeah, so that was the transition of going into schools, how difficult it was, and then moving out of the area more as a corporate space and working with adults, which was a fun transition. That's when your book, The New Rules of Engagement, came out. Yep. Was it a natural fit to write a book? Well, I don't know, not really. I mean, I could do it. But yeah, writing is not something I enjoy. I mean, I have a blog that I've meant to update every, I don't know, couple of days. (laughs) I probably update every few weeks, if I'm honest. Mm -hmm. It's not natural to me. And I remember actually... Um, sitting down to write that book and, you know, we'll live in an apartment because we had no money. We'll live in an apartment in Abbotsford um, that was south-facing, no air conditioning, and it was cold. Like, well, there was a winter while I was writing the, the bulk of the manuscript for that book. I remember sitting there with a doona around me at my desk and, like, being able to see your breath. Like, it was so cold in this apartment. And just sitting there, typing away, trying to narrate like, this, this, this manuscript. And I remember at one point I'd, we'd been out and I was just getting home. And I remember so vividly getting out of the car and walking from the garage up to the apartment and just being sort of miserable, like, oh, I'm so fed up with this project. You know, it was, it was at that point where, and I think we've all been there, where you're working on a project and you're just like, I could so easily walk away right now. I'm, I just don't feel like I'm getting anywhere here. And I just remember this, this quote that I've probably read somewhere over the years and, and it's something that, that came to me in that moment and I'm so glad it did because the quote that came to mind was, if it was easy, everyone would do it. And yeah. I think that's so true because it wasn't easy, but everyone says, oh, I'd love to write a book one day. And when, you, when, you, when you're introduced to people and, you know, an author, oh, yeah, I've got a book idea, I want to write a book. And I'm like, that's great. And I want to encourage people, but oh, do you really know just how hard it is? And it is hard. Like it's the, the, so they've written five books now and all of them are hard in different ways for different reasons. And I, the, the feeling of being finished and sending them to a publisher is just the best feeling because... It is, it's a hard slog to write a good book. Yeah, it wasn't a natural fit. The way I got started actually in writing the book is actually, um, I'd been delivering these presentations for teachers in schools. And so I just got a recording of one of my presentations and sent it to a person who transcribed it and sent it back. And I had a 12,000 word, um, word document of a presentation. And that was really helpful because that at least gave me a start. 
Mm. So in our hotel thousand words, and I was kind of building on that and backfilling with data and you know, making points more concise or more impactful. And so anyone who's listening and wants to write a book, that is a good good way to start. You can't mm-hmm. stop that. You can't just go, oh, just speak out a book. Because, <laughs> you know, we don't speak in a way that's brief enough and compelling enough. You know, if you're going to read stuff on, a paper, you know, on the paper, it needs to be much more carefully sifted. But that's how the book process worked. Hard work, but so worthwhile. And I don't know how many we've sold of that book now. I reckon we've probably sold 120,000 of that book. That's just wow. huge amounts. And the feedback, I... That's some great feedback. Even now, I mean, I've done five editions of that book, or six editions. Even now, though, I still get people who say, I read that book five years ago and completely transformed the way I was relating to my teenagers because they're Gen Y and I was just butting my head up against a brick wall and I read that book and suddenly understood them and then we could relate better. And I mean, there would be probably 30 or 40 people like that who have almost been in tears and say, this book changed the way I raised my kids, I've changed the way I taught my class in school. So pretty cool. Like, it's, yeah. you know, even though it was hard... It was definitely worth it. And that, that, that saying, if it was easy, everyone to do it, is something I often come back to whenever I'm working on a new project or a new book. From there, you moved into the corporate space. Yeah. And for you, that was a great fit. Yeah, I mean, for, for really simple reasons as well, because in the corporate world, they, they really value what you do. So schools do as well, but when you're working with students, typically schools are such a busy place you know when i get booked to go and speak to a group of students the teacher had no idea who i was you get to the front office and they did they weren't expecting you so <laughs> you have to sign in the front office at the school and they'd be like i don't know who you're meant to be here for and you say well i'm here to speak to you tell well, i don't know who's, who's organizing that they put out a call over the intercom and nothing would be set up the microphone wasn't plugged in so every day was just you know you um you talk about honouring people, like you were dishonoured constantly in schools. You just go with it um, and you, you, know, you don't let it affect your ego because you're like, okay, well, I'm, 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 I'm low on the pecking order here, so I was going and do my thing. And then you go into the corporate world and people set up microphones for you and, mm-hmm. and they, they say, have you got any special dietary requirements? And um, you know, what would you like to have set up on the table before you're there? And, just, and that was really lovely. So from a lot of perspectives, the adult market was fun, but also... In terms of humour, it's just much easier. When you're dealing with students, there's, there's a type of humour that will get a reaction from students, but it's a pretty, it's an, it's a, it's an archetype of humour. Like it's, it's simple and it's casual and it's sarcastic. But with adults, you can be much more intelligent and nuanced, and I love that. So adults are a really good fit. The fees jump, which is nice. Instead of doing, I don't know, some weeks I'll be doing in the school world four, five, six, seven presentations a week around the country and it's it's low fee, high volume work and you get really good but you also get pretty tired and you're away all the time. And then suddenly in the corporate world your fees sort of almost double. And so you're suddenly able to work a bit less and be more strategic in the way you spend your time. And that's really fun. It's almost like the analogy for a couple of my colleagues uses it's like you click back a gear in a manual car, you speed up and you go back to second gear and you're still going as fast or faster, but it's less of a strain on the engine. Yeah. You go third gear and then fourth gear, but I'm going to up to fifth gear. And, I mean, in my speaking business now, I'm in like sixth gear. So I'm going fast, massive audiences, massive platform, but being able to choose my schedule really well. And mm. that's a privilege that takes years to get to, but I, I never take it for granted. I love that. The corporate world is just a different space and yeah, I'm very grateful for the perks and the privilege it is, it's cool. And so across your years in speaking from, from schools to massive crowds around the world, are there any particular events or moments that really stand out in your mind? Yeah, I mean, some stand out for all the right reasons because they were really cool opportunities. So I remember the biggest event I've ever spoken at was a conference in New Orleans in the US that was 23,000 people. Wow. And I remember just 
being on stage, and the funny thing is, once a crowd gets beyond about eight or 900, being on stage is a very lonely affair. Because once you get above that size audience, you can no longer see anyone. And the nature of the way AV works past 900 people is the lights are too bright, the distance is too great, and so it's actually a really different dynamic. You're essentially speaking as if you're in a studio, because you know there's people out there and you can hear the, hear the reaction, but it's actually funny how you walk off stage after the big events and it's sort of simultaneously exhilarating, but also really depressing. If this real, or well, certainly I have each time I've done really, really big events, you sort of this almost this, this dive where you're just like, I don't know if I did any well. I didn't. I don't know if that was any good. You almost get a bit depressive, and it's weird. Yeah. And and I can't, I've spoken to a few colleagues who are on the, in in that sort of space, speaking of big events, and they say, yeah, that's not uncommon because you, you're not getting any real time feedback, and you give so much energy, and you walk off stage, and you've given, given, given at a high sort of energy pace, and then you walk off and go, I don't even know if that landed. And so it's sort of yeah, those big events have been really cool memories and cool moments to think, how amazing that 23, 24,000 people are sitting there listening to like just me like I'm just me from Wollongong and obviously I've got ideas sufficient to attract the crowd and be worthy to be on the platform so those sort of moments are pretty cool I mean there's been other moments that have been cool for other reasons I remember doing some work in a juvenile justice centre in Townsville years ago and going to speak to the boys at this jail back when I was running the schools program because we work with schools and TAFE colleges and the whole spectrum and so Working in juvenile justice centres was really interesting, terrifying, like, and it's such a different environment to anything you'd know. But you know, what was really cool is you, you get into that environment, you realise that behind, beyond all the, you know, that they looked different, they were from different backgrounds, there was an aggressive nature to them. Beyond all that, they were like anyone else. And I think it was really a really cool moment to think, what a privilege to be in that environment, an environment I'll probably otherwise never really go into. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's been quite extreme, a whole lot of extremes um, in terms of the, the highlights and for very different reasons. And another aspect to your career that I think is really interesting is you would have met people from all areas of society, mm-hmm. like you spoke before about the juvenile justice system, yep. but then you've also been on stage next to some of the you know most successful people in the world. Yeah. Are there any, I guess, interactions or people that stand out to you or even any reflections you have on that? Yeah, well, I think the thing that really stands out is the people who are truly at the peak of their, at the top of their game are the ones who, when you meet them, there's a, an, an unassumedness, a calmness about them. They don't have to, you know, they don't have to be impressive. And I met some really amazing people just in the last six to 12 months. So some that stand out, um, Steve Wozniak, co-founder of Apple, mm-hmm. was speaking at a conference next to him and we had a great chat backstage. Very genuine, very humble, very down to earth. Um, very generous, you know, really happy to engage and what can I do to help and just great. Um, I was at a conference a few months ago and John Maxwell was the other keynote speaker and just sharing some time with him backstage and again, just really humble and unassuming. And yet it's funny that the people who are in the mid-range, like they're, they're not made it yet, they're, so they're not the, the, the entry-level speakers, but they're not also really successful. The people in the middle are the ones who are most um, insincere. Yeah, they're like, they, they talk to me, you always get the sense it's like, they're trying to suss out, are you important? Can you get me anything? If not, it's sort of like, I'm not really interested. And, and I think that's the thing I've noticed is that there's such a range of people and the people who achieve real success and stay successful somehow manage to constantly be others focused. So there, there's a generosity, there's a humility that is really endearing. And it's the people who haven't quite made it, who are trying to appear like they've made it, are often the ones who are really egocentric and it's all about them and they're always talking about themselves and so I just I've noticed that particularly when you deal with people who many of us see on TV and we hear on the radio and we we see in public life when you see them backstage you get a, you get a very quick sense of their character 
And so it's been really interesting just observing those behaviors and those traits and also thinking as as my profile continues to build, just being really del- deliberate about how I interact with people and never falling into the trap of becoming a prima donna or too, too self-absorbed or never losing that humility and that real desire to, to help and to be generous and to engage with, with people regardless of what you can get from them. And then in terms of the content you speak on, you speak to several kind of different topics. Yeah, yeah. Is there something particularly close to your heart? Do you have a favourite? That's a great question. I certainly have topics that I enjoy sharing on more, and it's quite a broad range. So I do a lot of work still in the space of understanding generational change. So now the focus has shifted to that much younger generation who are the Gen Zs and the Gen Alphas who are filling schools. Gen Gen Y are actually now the teachers, which is sort of interesting. Um, There's still some Gen Ys at high school, but they're only in year 11 or 12. And so, yeah, the, the generational stuff I re- still, still really enjoy because I see the light bulbs going off, you know, and I still get to do some work with school teachers. Um, and that's really rewarding because, you know, school teachers are often in an environment where it's like this echo chamber of the school. And that, I mean, outside of the school, there's a whole world that they just don't get to engage with because in a school, you're so focused on what you do. And, and I come in and often share, you know, these are the trends. This is what's going on in young people. This is, this is what's driving their attitudes, their expectations, their beliefs. And you can just see people go, oh, now I get, I get why that class, when I do this, this is the way they react. And I couldn't understand, I couldn't, I couldn't get enough distance from it to really see what was going on mm. or to understand it was part of a trend. It wasn't just that class. It's actually, this is their generational mindset because of the media they've grown up on and the attitudes they've been given and the technology they're exposed to. So that's really rewarding, but that's certainly one part is still the generational stuff. Um, and I do a whole lot of stuff on innovation and change, which is really good and really marketable businesses really find that valuable. So it's exhilarating because it's useful. Um, the most recent stuff around momentum is pretty new. I've just written a book on momentum. How do you, mm. how do you sort of get into a groove and make that groove stick and make sure the groove doesn't become a rut? Mm. Um, and if you've lost your mojo, how do you get it back? And that's been really, really valuable content, really fun to do something that's quite different to any of the other research I've done or the other books that I've written. And I presume you're not sort of a one-man show anymore. Do you have a team behind you? Or? Don't. You don't? don't? Okay. So I have over the years, I've had other speakers on team, and but I never enjoyed that. So okay. I guess I got into this business and this line of work to, to do what I do, which is to speak and to impact people and yeah. to produce content. And over the time, the moment I had team members, that just brings all the headaches that team members bring. Mm-hmm. And the hard thing is when you've got people going out and delivering your content, quality management is a real issue. And by the time people get good enough, and you're like, I don't have to stress anymore because I know they're proficient, I represent the brand really well, that's normally the time at which they leave and set up their own training <laughs> business. And I've seen that happen so often with my peers. Yeah. And so I've had teams of speakers, but just can, you know, taking it back to just me. So I have a management agency, and they're, they're fantastic. They look after mm. everything. So in one sense, I've got a team in that that's an agency that look after negotiating fees, doing contracts, lining up flights, and all the logistical stuff. So all mm. I have to do is do my part, which is my bit, which is prepare the content and deliver it really well. So that, that's that's as much of a team as I've got, which is really cool. It's a, it's a really easy environment, which means when I'm not speaking, when I work at home, I've got a home office, and when I'm not doing stuff at home, you know, with my little baby, and I'm just having fun being a dad. And so I've got, in the midst of the busyness and the schedule and the travel, I still have a lot of time just to have a very simple life, which I love. You know, one of my favourite things at the moment is to, take our little boy who's just turned one, take him up to the cafe at the end of our street and watch the cranes building the building across the road from the cranes. And we'll just sit there every morning for 
half an hour and look at the cranes and the trucks and the buses and, and walk home. And then I'll start yeah. working on a presentation for the next day. And But that, that pace of life I couldn't have if I had a team of people. So yeah. I do like the simplicity of business at the moment. So you are in between the US and Australia. How do you find kind of going between those two locations and those cultures as well? It's interesting because in some ways I think we, we like to think that Australia and the, and the US are very similar. And I guess they are in some ways, but there are some things that are really different. Mm. And I discovered this the hard way when I first started operating in the US. And the biggest difference is that Americans in their desire to be generous is they way over promise and under deliver consistently. So. And with all the best of intentions. So, for instance, you have a, a, a conversation with someone about a business deal or a publishing contract or whatever it is, and they go, oh, yeah, absolutely, this is a done deal. We're so excited to work with you. And then you check back in two weeks later, and, and it's like, oh, well, actually, you know, what? Well, probably what we can do is this or that, or, or they just don't follow up at all. They just disappear. And right. in an Australian context, that, that doesn't really happen. We're actually we're more likely to do the, under, uh, the other way. We're sort of, we under-promise. We're like, oh, we'll see what works. But I'll get back to you and then suddenly it starts to turn into something cool. Mm. But in America, I did find you just had to not invest too many emotions because well, I've been disappointed so many times. You'd have the conversation, this is the breakthrough. This is going to be this amazing opportunity and it will come to nothing. And so I just had to learn very quickly that that was the case. Practically, America's a great place to work in some ways, infuriating in others. Anyone who's listening who wants to set up business in America, their banking system is a nightmare. <laughs> it's just so hard. Right. We, we've got a we've got a great tax system and a great banking system in Australia. When you start operating in the US, so for instance, if I if I speak in seven states throughout the year, I do seven tax returns for every state that I speak in, and then a federal tax return and. I pay a fortune in accounting fees. I mean, the fact that we have one tax system here is just, you don't realise how good we've got it in Australia mm. until you start operating in America. So, I mean, it's a great opportunity. It's a great culture, great place to be a speaker because it's such a warm audience. They, they'll give a standing ovation for, you know, a solid effort. You know, they're just so appreciative. But, yeah, there are some challenges in America as well. The biggest issue about going between here and there is the, is the distance. I went through a period of time, probably three years ago, where I was in the States every three weeks, and the toll it takes on your body is massive. And at that point, I was probably not flying business class every flight. Most flights, I wasn't. And so you're just constantly chasing your tail in terms of jet lag. And I mean, I'm pretty fit and pretty strong, so I'm fine to do it. But I'm, I remember at the time thinking, I don't want to do this forever because it takes a real toll on your body. And then you mentioned before, kind of everyone's got an idea for a book. Mm. So the other thing, everyone's got an idea yeah, for an app, yeah, right? You've yeah. moved into that space as yes. well. Yeah. So that's been an interesting journey. And the, the journey to creating this app actually started well, years back. So um, it started just after Dad passed away. So a couple of days after he passed away, we found in his desk a notebook that I'd given to him the previous year on Father's Day. Mm. And in this notebook, as we started flicking through it, he'd actually started filling it out. And I'd asked him on Father's Day to start recording his stories and memories. Because oh. I moved out of home at this point. I was living away from home. And I said, you know, all those stories you told us about your childhood and all that stuff, can you write them down? Because it'd be great to just have them recorded in one place. And I was even a bit embarrassed giving it to him, thinking, will he do this? Is that a bit random? Anyway, we discovered this book a few days after he passed away, filled with stories, stuff wow. that, a lot of the things we didn't know, just just things about his experience, his childhood that would otherwise never have been recorded. And so that experience led me to create a series of journals. So a couple of the books I've written have actually been more journal-style books to help parents write their stories. We had a great success with that. So I had a book released here called Memento, 
and that went really well here. US publisher picked it up, it went great in the US. And so we had this range of books out to help people write their story, but the feedback consistently was, it'd be nice to be able to do this digitally so I can upload photos, not just write my stories. And also if I've got three kids, I can produce three books rather than just having the one book that I fill out, like who gets the book type thing. And so what the, the result of all that feedback over the years was um, my publishers and I bit the bullet and said, well, let's create one. So we created an app called Histography. And the idea is you give it to your parents to write their life story. And so you give it as a gift to your parents. They um, register um, with a gift voucher that you give them for birthday or Christmas or whatever it is. And they then every week will get um, an email. Every week for you, they get an email with a question. The question's a question about their, their, their childhood, their memories, their experiences, their stories. They just hit reply to the email and type up whatever story relates to the question that they've been asked. They also upload photos and then the URL gets collated into a hardcover book, which is essentially their life story in print. And so we've created that probably, we've done a few different versions trying to tweak the, the model and we launched it properly last Mother's Day and it's gone really well. Then we're now looking to revise that, put some new features in and yeah, just continue to grow that, which is pretty cool. And again, great feedback because we actually had a conversation with someone recently who'd given it to her mum just after it was launched last year. And her mum passed away a few months ago, but she'd finished a book. Oh, wow. She's so cool. You know, I think that's yeah. just the impact of that one product. And so histography has been a great project. I've learned a lot. I've spent a lot of money. It's been a big investment. Um, it hasn't, I mean, we've, we've almost made the money back we've invested. It's not been a cash cow by any stretch, but it's such a worthwhile project. And I think, I think God's going to use it. I think it's going to really make an impact, which is sort of cool. I'm not quite sure how. I'm not sure what shape that will take in the next few years, but... I'm really confident that's going to be something that's going to have a significant impact on people's lives, which is cool. Yeah. And so you mentioned there about God using that work. Mm. Can you talk a bit about how, if it does, how your faith interacts with the content that you speak on and that you write on? Yeah, it's interesting because in some ways it's not a natural fit. I mean, what I'm writing about and what I'm speaking about is often future trends, for instance. And mm. you're talking about driverless cars and 3D printing and nanotechnology. And I'm talking about how businesses can prepare for that. So it's quite a, a business strategy, innovation focused topic. So, but typically the next step beyond talking about trends is how do you prepare for them and navigate change. And the principles for doing that are actually at the core of them still biblical principles you know, in many cases. And so it's funny how a lot of what I do, you know, there, there's a biblical undertone to it, I guess. Certainly there's nothing that would be contrary to biblical themes. But what's really interesting is I guess I must be in a position where the way I do what I do is what speaks loudly as well because I often, often have people after a presentation go, you, there's something about you that's different. Like, what is it? And um, my tone on stage and my style is very relaxed. I'm quite calm on stage. So... That really stands out. There's a, there's a different, there's something, there's something different about the way God's equipped me to present on stage because it has real authority without having to be a pushy, loud, aggressive, high energy, high octane, trying to whip things up um, energy. And so that's sort of that's interesting because that's the question I often get is what what is it that's different? There's a groundedness that you don't. It's almost like you don't need the approval of the audience, and that's mm. so different. I and mean, it's a, it's an industry with a lot of need for approval. And of course, everyone wants to be thought well of and you want to know that people liked what you said and that you did a good job. But I think the biggest thing, the biggest way faith informs what I do is that my identity isn't in it, I hope. You know, I think the harder thing is, is even if your identity is not wrapped up in your work or your success, 
over time it can creep in and start to attach itself to your success and and sadly the time you often realize whether your identity is really attached or not is when you lose everything you know and i often have these moments where i pray and i think you know if if i were to lose all the status all the credibility the reputation if i was not on stages and getting applauded and all the wonderful nice things would would that affect my my view of myself and my identity i'd like to think it wouldn't but you never quite know so but i'm really conscious and mindful of of my identity being in being a son of god and being saved by grace not by anything i can do not because i'm good enough and the moment i think you know i'm pretty clever i'm pretty talented god you're lucky to have me in your in your kingdom that's a moment where i'm like okay cool that's the reality check where humility's got to come back in crack away the pride and pride creeps in really easily particularly in this world where you know i'm constantly being standing ovations and lines of people wanting books signed and make sure that stuff doesn't become a part of who you are because it's it's dangerous when you start listening i guess to the the applause of other people too too closely and so if people do want to come and hear you speak or or purchase any of your books how can they do that probably the best way is just to go to my website so it's my name so michaelmcqueen.net um, and most of the speaking I do is for individual groups. So it'll be for a company. So they're not public things where people can just rock up. I don't do a lot of those sort of public workshop type things, but certainly online there's a lot of video content and stuff about the books and um, Facebook's a good way to connect. I've got a, a business Facebook page where I'm constantly posting stuff about trends and what I'm doing research-wise. So yeah, that'd be a good place for people to connect. Great. And so over your career, what would you say has been your proudest moment, if there is one? There'd be a couple. I think probably the most significant one was when I got the journal Memento printed. Um, So that was the one to help people write their life story. And it actually ended up being the second book I released, but it was the first book I started working on. Um, But it just took forever to find a publisher who was brave enough to give it a, a shot because it was, it was a bit risky. Mm-hmm. It was risky because it didn't fit the category. It wasn't, it wasn't a gift book, but it wasn't a journal, like a moleskin type journal. And it wasn't a parenting book. And it, so it didn't fit in any of the categories in bookstores. And so I went through 21 publishers, 21 knockbacks over probably two and a half years. Wow. That was hard. Yeah. It was hard to be confident that I had something worth doing. And the fact that we went on to sell tens of, I don't know how many thousands we sold, probably close to 80 or 90,000 ended up selling of that. It's just interesting because it took so long to get a publisher to take the risk. I mean, the day I got a publisher for that, that was an amazing moment. I remember I was actually on a speaking tour in the central west of the state. I was actually, I think, in Young at the time when I got the call through from the publisher that they just signed. And that was just, I was just like, wow, it worked. After 21 knockbacks, and I kept most of the letters because, you know, you meant to do that because all the publishers that say, your idea is rubbish, you're like, you've got to keep those for when something works. And you go, well, see, you were wrong. And so I've got all these letters from publishers saying, you know, politely, it's not going to be for us. And so once that, once getting a publisher for that, that was probably one of the most proud moments and probably one of the moments too where I really thought this was something still tied to dad. And so I thought, you know, he would be so proud as well. And I was going to ask you a toughest moment as well. Would it be some of those knockbacks? Yeah, it would be tough. The knockbacks were really tough. Um, But I think certainly it was the time working in schools. That was really, really tough. You know, day after day going into environments where I was terrified. Like I really was. And you just got to suck it up and get on with it. Um, But, you know, there were some really tough days where I was just miserable. You know, just really... 
over it. Um, but realize, you know, I've just got to stick this out. And if I stick it out, every day I'm building credibility that will feed into what I one day do. Um, and, you know, the, even at the time when I was trying to straddle both jobs, you know, at one point I was in a, in a role where I was sort of almost going door to door in a sales role for this, this company. And I just hated that, that job, but I had to keep it until I had enough coming through from the business I could give that job away. And it was interesting because, you know, my view of where I wanted to go was so far removed from my reality at the time. Like I was, you know, every day I was on the road as a rep, so I'd have my little esky in the back of the car with my Vegemite sandwich and my apple. And it was just sort of this, it was an unglamorous existence and no one wanted to talk to me because, you know, you're the salesperson selling software that no one's interested in because they're busy. And like, it's soul destroying. I mean, anyone who's been in a sales role like that, the door-to-door sales type thing, it's hard work. But I remember just thinking again, if I just stick at it. And so the the same that same mentality of when I was you know, before I was you know running the business, the hard, hardship of that job, which was awful, and then working in schools, which was tough. There's been a couple of years now since I've had any of that, any of those moments actually, and which is fun. It's nice to actually <laughs> not have to do that anymore. But there were quite a few times where you know it was really difficult to persist. I'm so glad I didn't, and I and I kept praying about it, and just the time sensing God say, "Trust me, and this is going to be blessing. Mm-hmm. Trust, trust me for the path." And I remember thinking, "This doesn't look like doesn't look like it's working, God. Okay, I'll I'll trust you, but I really don't know how this is going to happen." Looking back now, it seems like a really straight path and a really easy track, but when you're looking forward at the path ahead. It's just like, I don't know how this is going to work. When you look back, it makes perfect sense. It's like, well, that was so clear. Mm. But at the time, it wasn't. And there were lots of those moments where I just would fall back on what I sensed God was saying, which was just trust me for the path here. Wow. Yeah. Great. And then you spoke also about how you're a husband and a Mm. father. Do you have any reflections you would share with us on that side of your life? Wow. Well, becoming a dad has been just awesome. It's been such a cool thing. And... So the journey for us was a really long journey. So we were trying for six years to have a baby and that was just awful. And mm. you talk about the hard moments and I mean, outside of anything professional, the hardest moments of life have been those those moments where, you know, we just, just so longed for a child and everyone around us was having kids and some of our friends were on their second and their third kid. And some of your friends were really insensitive and say stuff like, oh, we, didn't even, we weren't even trying. We just felt pregnant. We just want to punch them because it's so <laughs> frustrating and yeah. nothing you can do to hurry along. We're just trusting God for the timing. And you know, that, that was a long journey, six years. And so I think becoming a dad, that there's so much sweeter because of that. And it's funny how people give you all the wonderful advice and the, the advice you hear from everyone is cherish every moment because it goes so quickly. And I almost want to say, I'm the last person you need to tell that to because I, I absolutely cherish every moment. Love it. Mm. Absolutely love being a dad. And and so my wife and I are just enjoying this season of life. And there's a real, I know, a real settledness about this season. You know, we're, we're in a home that we love. We're in a church that we really enjoy. We've got our know, family growing. In many ways, this is the fruit of so much of what we trusted God for and have worked toward for so many years. And it's just a lovely, a lovely season. So... Yeah, we're just really cherishing every moment and really grateful. Amazing. And so for you throughout your journey, has there been a particular Bible passage or even a Bible figure that's been particularly significant for you? There's been heaps, heaps, lots and lots of verses that have been really significant. You know, I was thinking of this before we sat down to speak and you know, I think you know, that the verse, the beginning of, um, of Proverbs, so Proverbs or Psalms, I always get this one mixed up. You know, trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean not in your own understanding, and all your ways acknowledge him and he will make your path straight. 
And the things that I've often leaned on in that verse, with all of your heart, not just with part, not just with that sense of, I'll trust you as long as it's safe, but I'm not going to give you everything, God. I'll just hold some back in case you don't come through for me. Just that, that with all of my heart, I'll trust you. And lean not on, not on my own understanding, even when I can't see a way forward, even though it might seem foolish in the world's eyes, I'm going to trust. And that's that's been a really cool verse. Um, I was thinking too of you know, Psalms 42 and 43. I just love, and these are um, sons, Psalms of um, the descendants of Korah, the sons of Korah. And I just love these passages, you know, when they're so honest, you say, why am I so discouraged? Why is my heart so sad? I'll put my hope in God. I will praise him again, my Savior and my God. Now I'm deeply discouraged, but I will remember you. And it goes on to say you know, what God has done and the faithfulness of God. And there's been quite a number of times, particularly in those moments where I wanted to quit, and there's been lots and lots of those. And just, I think, well, that's what I love about the Bible is you've got this massive spectrum of, you know, the, the mountaintop experiences of God is awesome, it's amazing, and he's triumphant and victorious and trustworthy, and then the real honesty of where are you, God? Where where are you taking me in this? Uh, mm. In my heart, in my head, I know that you're good and this is going to be okay, but in my heart, I don't feel it. And so I think those verses I often came back to because I think for a lot of us, when you go through those moments, you sort of feel like you're the first and you're the worst, you know, that no one's ever experienced this before. And I think just knowing that someone else and that actually throughout time, that's a common feeling. And to acknowledge it and go, you know what, I feel like rubbish. I'm over it. I'm tired. I'm discouraged. I'm going to ask why, because there might be some wisdom in this, but at the end of the day, I'm actually going to trust that I will praise you again yet. I'm just going to keep going. It's one step after the next, which is what a pilgrimage is, just keep going, doing what I know to be right, and I'll come out the other side of this. And so I think those verses have been so encouraging along the way too. Yeah, amazing. And I'm wondering if you can sort of sum up for us kind of what's at the core of your faith of what you believe and how you see the world. Yeah. I think well, in the core of, of core of my faith is just the notion of grace, this ridiculous kindness of God, you know, the, the kindness that leads us to repentance and, and the fact that there's nothing I can do or could have done to be worthy of, of God's love. And that just puts everything into perspective, I think. It puts into perspective the fact that everyone else is loved by God the same, and so therefore mm. that informs how I treat them. Um, and I forget that sometimes. You know, you, you treat people based on how they deserve to be treated. You know, justice, not mercy. And you think, who am I? Like, what right do I have? If I've been treated with such lavish grace, and the moment I forget that and I, and I move the centre of my life away from the grace of God and that the favour I experience is because of Him, not because of anything I've done to carry that favour or that love, that's when I lose perspective on who God is and how I should rightly worship Him, but also how I need to see the world and other people around me because if I've been dealt with grace then I should be dealing with others in grace too and so I think that's been the key learning over the years particularly coming from an environment from a Catholic upbringing where the concept of grace and mercy weren't you know really strong there was the idea of earning God's favour and being good enough and I think that's so deeply ingrained in me to try and be good enough to 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 be worthy of God's favour and then him teaching me over the years that you can't so almost don't bother not as a license for sin or just to you know throw your hands in the air and go you know whatever this is just who i am you know, not as a license to sin but as a, a freedom to realize that you're not good enough and that that once you can rest in that that's where the power of god and the strength of god is really found mm, that's great and so after going through a lot and achieving a lot and you're now in this great space that mm. you described with your family and with your career yeah. and your church. 
What are your hopes and dreams for the future? Yeah, it's a good question because sometimes I wonder, is it just more of the same, you know, mm. more influence? And I actually don't know what God's going to do, but the prophetic word that I remember right at the beginning, before I did any of this, is that um, he would give me lips of influence and, mm. and a tongue of influence to do mighty things for him. And so I don't do a lot of stuff in the church at the moment. You know, most of my stuff is in the corporate world. And I just wonder whether, you know, there is something in the future that will be, you know, speaking to God's people in a way that I haven't yet. Um, I've never felt a call to ministry, full-time ministry or, or being a pastor, but that may be in the future, who knows? Um, but at the moment, I think just trying to be far more deliberate and strategic about how I use my time so I can have more influence without living out of balance. You know, particularly with a young family, I could get busier and busier and busier and be away from home more and pursue the next book and the next the next opportunity and you know we've talked with the idea of moving to the states for a season and again i'm just not sure because there's such a cost to that you know leaving family and grandparents and all the stuff that's important that financially it makes a lot of sense to do the american thing but you pay a big price in other areas too so i'm not quite sure what it looks like in terms of of the shape the future will take but what i want to be is really sensitive to navigating it well and keeping it in balance because i'm pretty ambitious but i don't want that ambition to come at a cost and that cost being family so probably something in the church, I hope, but I just, I'm, I'm not quite sure what that looks like, but just wanted to navigate the path ahead well. Sparrows and Wildflowers is brought to you by Victory One Media and hosted by Rachel Simpson with artwork by Nicola Gibb.